Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is mastering engineer Pete Dell. First of all, let's talk about the pros and cons of a record deal. Now, this is something that every artist or band wants. It's a sign of prestige, something that they think once they've hit that, once they get this deal, then they've hit the pinnacle. They don't have to worry anymore. But is a record deal all that is cracked up to be? Let's look at the pros and cons. Well, a big pro is you get an advance. Now, this could be something from hundreds of dollars to hundreds of thousands of dollars to even millions in certain deals. But that's money in your pocket that can be used for a variety of things. You also get a support team from the label. Now, they'll help you with all sorts of things in order to help your music, in order to help your marketing, just help you do what you do best. There's also tons of promotional resources that you can get from the promotional teams to marketing money, to social media help, to all the things that you've always wanted but could never afford. And there's the financial resources of a label. When it comes to recording, for instance, label's going to pay for that and for those music videos that you always wanted. And like I said before, there's a prestige. Everybody wants a record deal, and they also want to tell their friends and their family and other musicians And in many cases, it puts them in a brand new light in their eyes. But there's lots of cons as well. Big one is financial. So if you're what they call a baby band or a baby act, you're starting at a very low royalty rate, 10% on a physical product and 20% on streaming. If you're used to making everything as an independent artist, those days are over. If you're also used to buying CDs and vinyl to sell at your gigs, well, You can't do that anymore either because you're going to buy them from the label. And also that nice advance that you got, remember, it needs to be paid back. And also publishing. Label's going to want some of that as well. So there's lots of financial ramifications. Then you also lose creative control. You can't do what you want anymore with your music. Once upon a time as an indie, you could do just about whatever your whim is. Now, of course, You want to give the audience what they want, but on the other hand, you also want to support your art. When you're signed to a record label, they have a big say in exactly what's going to go on. So you could record some stuff, and if they don't like it, you're going to be recording it again or fixing it. You're also going to lose business control. Most labels want to control mailing lists and social media, and also you have to abide by the release calendar. So if they want something out at a certain time of year, you have to bend your schedule in order to hit that release date. Didn't have to do that before as an indie. Don't forget you're locked in for the period of time, the term of the contract, or until you're fully recouped. If they gave you a big advance, you're not out of that contract until you've paid them back. Could take a lot longer than you think. What most artists don't understand is there's a lot of competition. There's a lot of bands just like you. There's a lot of artists just like you that are signed to labels and are going to be releasing pretty much at the same time. There's lots of competition out there. And with all that competition, there's only so much listening time available. So there's lots of cons. But if you want to become a superstar, a label is the only way. They have the infrastructure that can't be duplicated. However, The best way to go about it is to become successful first on your own. 
that means that you can then strike a better deal with the label, get some concessions, and not start out so much as a baby band. They're really equipped to take you to the next level, but you have to hit the first one yourself. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, something that's happening recently is deepfake music. Basically, it's artificial intelligence that's being used to create new songs that are seemingly performed by artists like Frank Sinatra, Tupac, Elvis, and other live and dead stars. They're cute tricks, but deepfakes can also change music forever. Now, you can go online to OpenAI and actually do this yourself. And a lot of people have done this. And they've created deep fakes by Katy Perry and Simon and Garfunkel, Celine Dion, and many more. The way this can be accomplished is that the AI engine has been trained by using 1.2 million songs scraped from the web. And that means music and the lyrics and the metadata. So it can input several minutes of raw audio based upon the music and the artists that you like. Then it's going to give you a song with the deep fake attached. OpenAI isn't the only one that does that. There's others. Google has the Magenta Project. Amper Music is another one. And Spotify even has an AI group. How does this all work? Well, they break down an audio signal into sort of a dictionary that has three different layers. And that gives you a set of fragments that allow you to reconstruct the music that was fed in. The algorithm can then rearrange these fragments based on the music that you input, and it could be anything from Janis Joplin to Snoop Dogg to Bowie or to whatever, you're going to get your deepfake. So you might think it's a cute parlor trick for this to happen. Fact of the matter is, it's keeping intellectual property and copyright lawyers up at night. Now imagine these scenarios. How about a sponsor that wants a particular artist but doesn't want to pay for it? Maybe like the Rolling Stones. They use a deepfake of the Stones to get what they want. It's a sound-alike, it's not them. It's not one of their songs. So, do they have to pay? Have they violated copyright? Streaming services and radio, if they want to make more money, they can use deepfakes instead. The problem is that there's no laws on this yet. The analogy is to sampling, and it took a while for intellectual property attorneys to get their arms around that. So, we're thinking that this is going to happen really soon. That being said, it's the Wild West out there when it comes to AI and deepfakes. Do you want to be part of it? All you have to do is go to OpenAI. My guest this week is mastering engineer Pete Dell, who worked as a staff engineer at the legendary Wally Hyder Studios before moving to Capitol Records Studios and then to Sony Pictures. While at Capitol, he worked on a wide range of artists from Miles Davis to Dwight Yoakam to the Beach Boys and many more. In the early 2000s, Pete transitioned into a mastering engineer, first at Universal Mastering Studios, then to Alter Media Audio Labs, where he currently works. His mastering credits include Ray Charles, James Brown, Puddle of Mud, Toto, and many more. 
I wanted to catch up with Pete since his last appearance on the podcast was in episode 165 more than four years ago. During the interview, we talked about the things that have changed in mastering, how streaming has actually been beneficial to music audio, the level of the mixes he asked clients to send him, mastering for the voice, and much more. I spoke with Pete from a studio in Hollywood. Where I want to start is, where are you with mastering, like, right now? Just how have you seen business change, especially, like, during COVID and post-COVID? Well, we're not quite post-COVID, but we're more normal. Well, I would have to say that a year and a half ago, when the lockdowns started, that my business spiked about 30%. And I I attribute that to because people uh, weren't out touring, barely performing, right? So they were staying home and making records, which is good for folks who master said said, uh, music and all that. And now that, as you intimated, things are relaxing noticeably, uh, and people are, in fact, touring and all that, my business has slowed down a tad. But, you know, as I'm sure you're aware, this time of year, everybody and the record labels and whatnot, they go away from Thanksgiving until probably the second week of January. So this is... Maybe that's all that I'm witnessing right at this moment. This has been pretty good, though. You're right. It's hard to tell. I don't think you can go by anything over the past year and a half. You look at numbers and you go, well, yeah, but it's an anomaly. What has changed in mastering for you? Well, I'm happy to say that the uh, streaming thing really has done a service to music in a way that if you make your stuff uh, if you upload, rather, a, a stuff that's uh, a, a track, rather, that is incredibly compressed and ultra loud and everything, and there's no no life left in it, and, you know, trying to make it sound louder than the previous thing on the radio, they'll turn you down. <laughs> and the net result of that is your thing that you wanted to sound loud and proud sounds actually puny. So for, I would have to say, for much for the better of music and for mixers, you know, where your stuff actually gets to sound way more musical and punchy and all that uh, on the streaming. So that's that's a good thing. And there has been a little bit of a learning curve for many of my clients uh, who have to, you know, originally, you know, break the thought that <laughs> I need to be louder than loud. And you really don't, which is a great thing. The other, the other big trend is immersive. And I have a fairly small studio here. I'm not going to be able to out-equip it, outlay it with a 7.4 or whatever to get really get into that. But uh, I'm happy to, to listen to it from afar. Our company, though, is making uh, an immersive soundbar, which oh. will be on the market soon. And- I want to get into that more in a second. But you're in a historical building as well. I guess that limits what you can do, too. Uh, yeah. To an extent, I, I'm not really quite sure how that works. You know, like in a lot of places, you're only allowed to change the exterior of the buildings. But that you're right that this place at Crossroads of the World is a, a landmark thing. Uh, the, the studio that I'm in here used to be Alfred Hitchcock's production office. And we have pictures of Alfie around and pictures of him with uh, Sean Connery and, you know, all these stars, Jimmy Stewart. And it's cool. I was lucky when I first came to Hollywood, I, I worked at Everything Audio, if you remember them. Oh, yeah. And I was the broadcast guy. I knew nothing about broadcast. <laughs> but 
eventually I got to meet all of the film people and Warner Brothers is one of my clients and I was on the lot and they said, come here, come here, this is special. Just stay in the back and don't say anything. And Jimmy Stewart came in to do a, a voiceover with Martin Scorsese directing, which was awesome. And I was just, you know, like a flower in the back of the room, not saying anything and just watching it all go down. I didn't realize how cool it was at the time, unfortunately. I hear you. I worked at Capitol for a long time, and then the beginning of this century, I moved over to Sony Pictures, and I remember doing something similar with Anthony Hopkins. And it was uh, some no-talent named John Williams who was (laughs) (laughs) producing this thing because it was part of a film score where he did did this recitative or whatever you want to call it, a spoken bit. It's really awesome, really. You know, we never talked about this, but why did you leave Capital? Because it seemed like it's a union gig, so it seemed like it was fairly secure. Well, it was secure, except there were uh, people who shall remain nameless for this conversation, who uh, made it uncomfortable for a number of us to be there. And a lot of great people left Capital who were super talented and were chased away, if you will. But like they say, the best re- uh, best revenge is to fall up. Yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, I, I I was lured away to Sony by the hope it was yet another union position, and hopefully that you weren't like working eighteen hours on a guitar solo. You know, like you might be <laughs> lassoed into doing it uh, on a record data capital from time to time. But uh, the motion picture thing was very very political, and it was also sort of like the same giant circus in front of you every day. And the music well obviously would change and the dynamic of the personalities involved would change. But you know, the only sort of big difference is do we have eighty-six guys today or do we have hundred and forty-six guys today? But the cool thing is the sessions are relatively short as compared to you know, being yeah. in the studio. And that's kind of refreshing because boy, that like you say, those long overdub sessions, they can just wear you out. It's over and over and over and over and over the same thing. Ugh. Well, not even an overdub sessions. I have a thing on my wall here. It's a, a, an award for the David Lee Ross Skyscraper record. It's like 1986 or something. And Steve I was producing. Fantastic the way it came out. But we worked like 140 hours a week for months. I didn't know my own name at the end of that thing. Yeah. And that was, like I say, soup to nuts. It wasn't just overdubs. But actually, I take that back because it was individual a la carte. We had have the drummer play, Greg Bissadet, fabulous. And he'd blow it up. And then we start layering the bass and guitars and keys and the vocals and build it all from the ground up. So, yeah, it was <laughs> very labor intensive. And it's funny because Steve likes to play with people, and the magic comes when you have a bunch of people in a room playing together. Yeah. And like we were mumbling a second ago about with the orchestral dates, if the scene called for like three guitar parts, there'd be three guitar players on the date right in front of you. So you you didn't have to imagine what it's going to sound like when Dean Parks does the second part and Luca Third does the third, you know, and they're all there. It's great. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about immersive. You just recently did something for AES, right? On immersive mastering? I should say I moderated a couple of panels. Right, right. It was a little over my little over my pay grade, but it's fascinating stuff, and it's certainly here to stay. 
I'm wondering how important immersive mastering is because there's some limitations on what you can do and what, what you need to deliver. How do you come down on that? I, I would have to defer <laughs> because I know there's like the object-based part of it and then there's like the stems part of it. And if you're mastering, I'm trying to remember, again, like I'm, I'm admitting this is something that I'm only tangentially associated with. Mm-hmm. It would be complicated to master it and not have it come unglued for like the fold down of it. Yeah. It's complicated. But like my friend Michael Romanowski and our, our friend Vance Powell in, uh, in Nashville, those guys are, uh, you know, swinging for the fences already. They're, they're doing great stuff. Yeah, Michael was into it for quite a while. He was on my podcast um, a couple of years ago, and he was doing it already then. Oh, yeah. Kind of a pioneer in that. But I, I've since talked to a number of people that are getting into it because they sort of feel forced, and I'm, I'm not so sure that that's a good thing. To me, there's a lot of places where immersive audio, just audio, not music, where that's going to work. Like games, right? Fantastic, I would think, for games. Well, games, movies, museums. I just read something where there's a company that's doing it specifically for hospitals because it lowers the stress, they found out. So all that makes sense. But That's fascinating. I look back to my 5.1 days, and it was great. We all had a lot of fun, made some money, and in the end, the consumer didn't buy in. So many formats like SACD, DVDA, all those things. And a couple of years ago, when it was first being looked at as another cash cow for uh, the record labels, they were giving like, okay, you, you got a young, good mixer, four hours. Okay, you got four hours to mix this thing in immersive. On your mark, get set, right? Yeah. And what, what was also annoying about it was that, let's say it was a Beatles thing, and Jeff Emmerich is, at the time, alive and well, just, you know, two miles away. Get him in here to do this. Uh, and I was afraid that here we have a potentially fantastic new avenue to distribute music, and they're going to ruin it by going the cheap route. That's kind of sad when you have something that's really groundbreaking and musically satisfying, perhaps even you know more than we could know now. So something that all mastering engineers are running into is the options that many people have to either do it themselves at home or do it online. So what do you think? Is that affecting you? Well, of course it is to some extent. But like like here at Aftermaster, where I work, we have an online automated mastering thing that was uh, the algorithm was developed by our mutual friend Shelly Yakis. And it sounds pretty darn good. But I think it's you get the $10 thing <laughs> to do it run through the instant mastering, or you get custom mastering done by yours truly. And I think that's 100 bucks. And I could fair amount of business through that. I mean, this is not all I do, certainly, but that's, you know, I mentioned that only because there is still a market out there for human beings (laughs) to master the music. I think artificial intelligence will at some point put myself out of work, but that's probably quite a ways away yet. Yeah, what I keep telling people is to be really gentle and really careful because most people that want to do this want to save money. And they don't have the chops, though, to be able to self-master. Self-mastering is so difficult, especially if you're using the same speakers in the same room. You're more likely to hurt yourself than help. I agree. 
I'm always saying, look, go to a mastering engineer, save the money. It's going to be worth it. But, you know, again, the tools are so powerful. Right. And uh, there are some really good ones. I won't mention their names because I still need to work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, some of them are really, the, what comes out is really musical. And obviously, you, you need to be in a monitoring environment where you can tell that you have achieved something better than what you had. As you say, if you sweat several days on a recording or a mix, and then you run it through a, a gadget or a, a process that in five or 10 minutes, you think it sounds good, but you're in the same room and the same speakers, uh, you, you know, you probably are fooling yourself. That's the value of going to an outside mastering engineer because our room is not like hi-fi land. It's a freaking laboratory. Yeah. It shows yeah. all the warts, all the good, all the bad. And hopefully you'll you get a client you can get a clientele like I always like the story of Bob Ludwig getting all these Grammys because he gets like all the fantastic mixes coming in the door that don't require a heck of a lot, right? Yeah, right. A lot of the times, to some degree, we're trying to save the patient because they were mixed on, you know, speakers that were like the speaker combination of the speakers and the, the environment, the acoustic environment where they were mixed were, were lying to the mixer, you know? Yeah. You weren't. You didn't have enough bass, or you had too much vocal, or the other way around, you know. So there's quite a difference between having the ability to just take it the, the, the last quarter mile to the finish line, or as you're intimating, really, take a, a left and really hurt yourself. What do you prefer, or what do you tell people before they send you mixes? Do you prefer that some headroom is left for you, or they just send you whatever they have, whatever their mix is that they're happy with? I asked them to t send me two versions of it. One where there isn't the big peak limiter on it. It isn't ultra loud. And there it is down to about minus three, you know, with some <laughs> breath still in there. And the one that they've been listening to, you know, like sending to the A&R knuckleheads or, you know, whatever, so that it, it is elevated to where uh, it sounds competitive uh, with what's out in the marketplace. Just so I, you know, you don't give them something that sounds great, but they don't come back and say, uh, could, it sounds good, but can you turn it up 2 dB or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's always the dicey part where if you have somebody that signs off on the mix, everybody signs off on it, okay, they like it. Well, you know, you're kind of reluctant to change anything. You send it to mastering. So that, that's the fence that you that you walk on. The, uh, the, the biggest instance of what you just mentioned is... Uh, when I was at Universal before I came over here a half dozen years ago, uh, we used to do that TV show, The Voice, right? And because it was a whole committee approving the darn mix, that they, they would say, "Oh, do your thing." We, you know, we really want to, we don't want to tie your hands. But if you changed, <laughs> really changed anything, because you got the the mixes like Sunday night, like at eight p.m., and they had to be uploaded to iTunes the following morning, so. Oh. You know what I mean? So they had you to get somebody's approval. If it was even a little bit different, was not going to happen. What can you change at that point? <laughs> well, mostly level. Yeah. You know? And you know, sometimes I think I, I was on a I had a, a mastering academy panel uh, a couple of weeks ago, and Michael Romanowski had a great point where he said, that, "You know what mastering is about? We're trying to make you sound more like you." then make your mix sound more like 
me. You know, we're not trying to put our signature on it. We're just trying to make you sound as as best as you can and eat the most emotion out of your performance and the arrangement and all those things, right? Yeah. We're trying to, I, I like the word midwifery. You know, we're trying to help give you the best output into the world, right? Yeah. So that you smell the sweetest. So we haven't talked in four years like this anyway. And <laughs> I'm wondering, how have your tools changed? You know, really not that much. I mean, there, there are, I'm pretty much all in the box these days. I have quite the usual complement of analog stuff. And I occasionally, you know, make a hybrid of the two. But there's such great, powerful, musical sounding things and just makes my workflow faster and obviously more repetitive, uh, recallable should there need to be uh, revisions and all that. There is a trend, I would have to say these days, of people releasing singles, onesie twosies, and at the end, they want to make an album out of it. And so if when I get the album all assembled and you see, oh, this one's a little odd. It sounds too bright compared to its cousins around it. All I have to do is open that session and, you know, make the little modification and try it and say, yeah, that's almost there. And you know what I mean? You, it makes, it makes them way more creative and way more, um, successful to deliver a smooth and beautiful product. Well, that's one of the big things about mastering that everybody overlooks. You know, they think, oh, it's just about tonal quality and making it loud and everything. But no, it's, it's making all the songs feel like they, and sound like they're all done in the same place. So they are, they're all compatible. I saw the other day, uh, day uh, a quote by Adele. I guess she was probably talking about her own record. But she was saying, you're not supposed to listen to the music in shuffle mode. Listen to it from top to bottom. Well, that's how we did it back in the day. We get your friends over, get the album on, roll a joint on the cover, and maybe listen to the whole record, maybe twice. You know, uh, but you listen to it front to back. And in addition to you know just like level matching, a lot of it is like the the insight about okay, is this one's going out. When do you feel the next one's going to start? You know, sometimes it's in tempo, but downbeat will be in tempo of the outgoing track and all that. But there's, you know, sometimes also we'll make it like like sets. Like if, if there's like ten shortish songs, we may make group. You know, like that after the third song, they might want to be a little longer breath, like a couple of seconds. And you know what I mean. You may so there, there you might think of it as sets or you know like groups of tracks that. Together, they make a statement, and the you know there are contrasting statements within the album. So, what about vinyl? How often are you asked to master for vinyl? Well, you know, I don't cut vinyl, but a lot of times I'm asked to to make a vinyl master, which really means a wave file that comprises all of sides A and side B with the spreads, and then you give the cutting engineer a PQ sheet so he knows exactly when the starts when to put the spread in between the, the tracks while he's cutting another thing but about vinyl is that and i don't do it very 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 often but it's 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 still like you know a couple times a month maybe but what i was going to say was that sometimes because of the limitations if you have a fairly loud record or record with a lot of bass you don't want to have more than like 20 minutes aside now let's say your your album your cd or your digital release Say it's 50 minutes. 
you may have to nuke a song, maybe two, or you may have to sequence it differently so that the songs with the big energy aren't the last thing on the, the side. Because as your, your listeners may not know, but I bet you do, that as you go towards the label, you get more distortion because of the tracking angle of, of the arm, right? Yeah. So it behooves one to pay attention to, you know, things like that. How much, how loud is the, the innermost track and how much bass is on the innermost track. But as a, as a mastering engineer who doesn't cut the vinyl, I don't have to worry anymore about stuff that we used to have to think about in the beginning of my digital mastering, which was, you know, perhaps monoing the bass a bit and DSing. There was a whole bunch of stuff that you really thought you had to be hyper aware. And also maybe making a, a cutting master that has less peak limiting and maybe a lower level. All that stuff seems to be not a problem. And if the cutting engineer says, you know, could you send me a version that, you know, that rarely, but occasionally it will happen. Did you hear about virtual vinyl? No. Oh, I have to send you this. I had the developer on my podcast recently. And what it is, is you can virtually pick the lathe, first of all, the virtual oh, lathe. Wow. And then it shows you the record. And after you feed the track in, it will show you all the places where it might be a problem. Pops up in red, so you can go make your changes. What it is, is it's making it kind of bulletproof for you to be able to deliver something. And you can hear what it's going to sound like right now, the virtual playback. So it simulates, or it anticipates, like you say, the the, the issues that may, you know, yeah. crop up when they actually do cut it. That's fantastic. I would love to learn more about that. Yeah, I'll send you a link on it. Yeah, you'll dig it. Just please. Less than time for Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> that was the first step to uh, HD vinyl, where they're cutting, instead of, you know, cutting metal parts, they're using a laser, and they're cutting everything with a laser and kind of eliminating the middle part of it. They're cutting on a ceramic disc. And when I was talking to them, they said, we're using lasers. We, we went someplace to find out what was the most precise laser in the world, and we needed something better. So they had to develop a cutting-edge laser to be able to do it. Because of the problem on vinyl, as you say, it's, it's different as you get into the, closer to the label. They're making some progress in all that stuff. Is that just theoretical at this point, or there's, is that really in the market now? It's not in the market. They're close. And they actually did have it out and then realized that they had to retool it a little bit because there were some of these problems that were unanticipated. And one was, of course, they needed this virtual vinyl app first. So that took a while to develop. That's really fascinating. Yeah, it's great fun, actually, to listen to all this. I would bet that uh, one of the sources they looked at for a, a super accurate laser would be the medical universe. And they use lasers for all sorts of crazy shit. This was a company out of Austria, and they went to the, the local university where there was a laser expert there. And the laser expert kind of guided them, is what I understand, or is guiding them. They also have a kind of like a CD Baby or a TuneCore. They have a version of that called Rebeat in Europe. How do you spell that? Rebeat, R-E-B-E-A-T. Oh, and what they also developed was a way of determining what the actual correct royalties ought to be. And they found out that 
coming back from iTunes and Spotify, there was always at least a 10% shortfall, in some cases even more. Went to Joey Bag of Donuts, no doubt. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Okay, so where do you see mastering going? What is the future? Well, I think that, as I was saying earlier, that that there's still a, a, a career out there for human beings, but at some point in the not terribly distant future, maybe a decade or more, that AI is really going to flourish. Uh, I mean, just the mind-blowing things that you just described about the virtual vinyl and so forth. There's all sorts of wild and crazy ideas that people are coming out with, and uh, technology exists to chase them. And the more musical people there are involved in the development of these things, the better off you know music will be, and <laughs> the worse off human beings like me will be, I guess. I don't know. Well, for mixing engineers, it's the same thing. And already we're starting to see AI make big entrances into the market. In mixing? Yeah, there's lots of tools out there that will help you with level. Isotope actually is kind of leading the charge in a lot of that. Uh, Masking, going in and and finding out what's masking what, and changing the EQ for you, things like that. No kidding. Yeah. They have a great tool. I'm trying to think of the name of it, which actually helps mixers that helps mastering engineers where you put in the type of music that you want it's something balanced yeah the genre and it will give you a curve and will give you like a, a big blue line you put your mix in and it looks at that and if your mix is within this line then yeah it's ready to go but if there's any peaks outside it's like oh okay here's the spots you have to look at that's not exactly automated but it just goes to show you that there are some tools like that that are, are based on machine learning that, you know. With any problem that you're trying to solve, the analytical part is to figure out what is the problem before you can solve it, right? Yeah. So that's the first step. That certainly is powerful stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, last question, Pete. Have you learned anything recently that you wished you would have known earlier in your career? Recently? I'll just something that I've known for quite a long time, but it took me a long time to figure out how brilliant this was, and that is for mixers and mastering engineers probably. Set your your monitor level at one place and don't touch it ever, except maybe dim to answer the phone. That's it, right? Because you can hose yourself so terribly by by even at one little click up or down and you're you're completely out out of uh, your point of reference. So that's That's an incredibly important thing. You can find out more about Pete and Aftermaster Audio Labs at aftermaster.com. That's after, A-F-T-E-R, master, M-A-S-T-E-R, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com, select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At BobbyOsinski.com and BobbyOwnerCircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Hey.